0: Let me say a word of prayer before I begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been preserved and passed down from generation to generation. That what is contained in your word is absolute, objective, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient truth. That what we have in the account of Acts is historical factual, that these are actual events, actual people, proclaiming an actual Christ, an actual spirit that transforms. Help us now to look to you, look to your spirit as we seek to understand your word. We know that understanding only comes through the granting of understanding by your spirit. And so we ask now that um, you would cause us to see your truth, to live your truth, to obey your truth, and to proclaim your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm very excited to begin our study in Acts because it reminds me of how unique and special the church is. It's a special And unique thing to belong to Christ, to belong to the people of God, to belong to the family of God. And I pray that we would not lose sight of that, that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And I've been reminding just how thankful I am to God, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit, and really for each one of you, that I'm connected to each one of you, bonded in Christ, in fellowship with all of you. And my prayer is that we would all come to a greater knowledge and understanding of what the church is, what the church is, specifically as it relates to God's plan. It's so easy for the evangelical church to lose sight of what the church is and what the church does. This is evident in the kinds of worship services that are occurring across the country, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, where worship is not primary, but rather the praise of man is primary, where church is less about exalting God and more about entertaining men, trying to attract people to come and fill the seats and so that they can make more money, where church is more concerned about attracting the world by becoming more like the world rather than being like Christ and showing that we are not like the world and proclaiming a message of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Where church is more concerned about accommodating unbiblical lifestyles than it is about holy living, calling sin what it is, and calling people to turn from sin and to live a life of obedience and righteousness in Christ. Where church is more concerned about social justice than true biblical justice, as God's Word defines it. Where church is more concerned about comfort and convenience than about making disciples and evangelism. Where church is more concerned about its own goals and agenda rather than God's goal and God's agenda and God's plan and God's purpose for his people. Acts will remind us and help to bring clarity as to why the church exists. Why does the church exist and how all of redemptive history before the foundation of the world and more particularly since the fall has been divinely ordained and orchestrated for this present age these latter days in which the church takes center stage in the plan of God and in which we are living in and in which we are here for and are to be used for to display the glory and love of God through the proclamation of the gospel for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Ephesians 1, 5 through 9, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him first john four nineteen we love because he first loved us romans five eight God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us second corinthians five seventeen through twenty therefore If anyone is in christ, he is a new creature the old things passed away behold new things have come Now all these things are from god who reconciled us to himself through christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation Namely that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore We are ambassadors for christ as though god were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is a demonstration of Christ-like love that Christ exemplified throughout his life and ministry and death and resurrection and his words. And he is continuing that through the church. He's continuing that through the church. This will be, again, an overview, an introduction to the book of Acts to help us get the bigger picture so that we would better understand what the church is and that it would prepare us for our study through Acts. First, we'll look at the storyline. Where does this fit into the storyline of the Bible? Why is Acts significant? And what is the church's place in God's plan? So first, we'll look at the storyline and significance of the book of Acts. This matters because we need to know what we do. We need to know what we do. The church cannot be confused about what it does what we are supposed to do, what our task is. Are we to transform society and culture? Is that our role? Is that our function? Are we to take up social justice causes? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Giving our time and efforts and resources to? Are we to isolate ourselves from the world because we're distinct? We don't want to be contaminated and influenced by the world, so we isolate ourselves into little Christian bubbles. Is that what we're supposed to do? We need to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. So we need to understand what we are supposed to be doing and that comes with understanding who we are It comes with understanding who we are. We don't want to miss the point of what we're called to do What is the church supposed to do? What is our purpose? What is our role? What is our place in god's plan and why is that? Crucial. Why is that critical? Why is that significant? Why is that absolutely? Necessary First, we need to understand two things about life. There's a horizontal level, and there's a vertical level. The horizontal and the vertical. The horizontal meaning the, our relationship to others around us and to creation. Vertical is our relationship with God. Vertical and the horizontal. So with the vertical and horizontal in mind, we have to consider the plan of God. The plan of God from the beginning to where we are in Acts from Genesis to Acts. We need to see the entire plan of God and that it moves to Christ. It moves to the gospel. The entire plan of God moves to Christ and it moves to the gospel. And if we see that, then we'll understand what the church has to do, what the church has to do, what our role is, and why that is such a blessing, why that is such a privilege, and why we can rejoice as we obey the gospel call to go out and proclaim it. So in Genesis, you know we have creation, and God's goal for all things is that the glory of God is displayed in all things. God displays his glory in all of creation. God draws glory from every aspect of his creation, both horizontal and vertical, pointing us to the understanding that it's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. In Genesis 3, there's a problem. There's a problem, a big problem. Adam disobeyed God. Adam, in other words, sinned. And sin is the problem. And sin is fundamentally a vertical problem because it regards one's relationship with God. And of course, we know that it has horizontal effects as well, massive ones, consequences that affect every area of our lives from trials to relationships to our brokenness. Sin causes every problem in this world. Sin causes every problem in this world. It is the ultimate root of every problem, and Genesis, from the very beginning, makes that clear. And so because the problem is vertical, the solution, therefore, must be vertical. And in Genesis 3.15, there's a glimpse of hope. God will triumph over Satan through the seed of the woman, who is Christ, the Messiah. Redemption has to move to Christ and the gospel if there is to be a solution to the sin problem. If sin is the problem, the solution has to move in that direction. Genesis 12, there's a, there's a covenant made with Abraham. He promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing. The goal that God has through Israel is that all the nations will be blessed and that God will make things right. And God's providential works through Israel for its history demonstrates that fact. At the end of Genesis, we see that with Joseph and the nation of Egypt, what was meant for evil against him, God meant for good. God is on a mission to make everything right, to point to Christ, point to the gospel, and he's providentially working through his people, Israel, and displaying that in the entire Old Testament. In Exodus, we see that God can and does deliver his people from an evil nation, telling us that God is a saving God, God is a delivering God. In Exodus 19, Israel is called a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, a nation that That brings other nations to god. That's their role. They're to attract nations to themselves by living differently by obeying the law living a distinct life They're to point other nations to god. They are a witness nation And that leads to exodus 20 the 10 commandments The law shows and teaches israel that everything that they do Which is to live a holy life in obedience to god is to be a witness to the nations to point them to their god yahweh But it also reveals their sinful and disobedient hearts And in Joshua, we have the conquest. The conquest, and they're brought into the land. But even though they're brought into the land, we know that the Bible doesn't stop there. God's story still continues because sin is still a problem. Sin hasn't been dealt with yet. In Judges, we see that all the judges do what is right in their own eyes. It's still not solved. Sin is still present. Sin is still spreading. When you get to Solomon's kingdom, this time of rest, this time of flourishing, this time of abundance, this golden age, that faded away because of, again, sin, idolatry, immorality. It hasn't been dealt with yet. And at this point, people are wondering, does does God really care about making things right? Is that really his goal, the restoration of all things, reversing the fall, making things better? Is he doing that still? Is he still at work? Because the problem is still sin. Sin is still everywhere. The prophets address that, and they proclaim repentance or judgment, but they also proclaim a Messiah, a suffering servant and and blessing. And we see that in Isaiah. But you need a new heart. You need a new spirit. That's in Ezekiel. There has to be the forgiveness of sins. Micah 718 says, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? There needs to be a suffering servant, a Messiah. There needs to be blessing that comes. There needs to be a new heart, a new spirit. There needs to be forgiveness of sins. For God to make everything right, there has to be, again, the forgiveness of sins. Sins has to be, sin has to be dealt with. So the entire plan of God, again, moves to Christ. It moves to the gospel. In Zechariah 14, it recounts when Jesus will return again at his second coming during a dark time for Israel and will establish a new creation. In verse 9, it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. He declares and promises to Israel that he will make everything right. And who does this? Who does this? Jesus. And that's a reminder to us that we don't change anything. We don't change anything. We don't change anyone. We are not the Messiah. We are not the hero. Our calling is to testify of the one who did and accomplished everything. Our goal, our calling is to testify of Christ. And the whole plan of God and even the entire Old Testament makes that clear by pointing to this servant that will make things right, that will die for the forgiveness of sins, atone for them. And in the New Testament, all of Jesus' miracles demonstrate that he can make everything right. He can deal with sickness, with leprosy, with paralytics, with hunger, with unity with all kinds of people, and even with death. He can make things right horizontally. But as the Old Testament anticipated, Jesus came to make things right vertically. The gospel, the problem of sin. In the Gospels, we learn that it is necessary for the Son of Man to die and to be resurrected. Sin must be dealt with, and then things can begin to be made right and move towards this new creation. And then you get to Acts, the ascension of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit as the apostles are called to be witnesses because they are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord, called to testify of him. And then we have the beginning of the church, the establishment of the church. What does that tell us? Tells us that we are part of a big plan. We are part of a big plan and we need to understand the weight, the magnitude, and the honor of what we are to do and what we are a part of. We need to know and understand the church's context, that the work that we do and are to continue is one in which ultimately spans all of history. It has implications that reaches from beginning to end and that reaches across the entire world to the ends of the earth. And so you, you might be thinking, can God use me? God can use you more than you could ever imagine because you are in the context of this amazing and massive plan. When we understand the plan of God, we should be humbled that we would be even be chosen to be used by him for this time in history. The gospel deals with sin. So you cannot have resolution of the problem of sin without the gospel. The gospel is absolutely necessary. The gospel deals with everything. Everything is resolved ultimately by the gospel. Life, death, Injustice, suffering, corruption, immorality will all be made right because sin has been dealt with at the cross And how do you enter into that? Repentance and faith in the gospel The vertical drives the horizontal We need to know that the vertical drives the horizontal everything relates to god first The gospel is about the satisfaction of god's wrath against our sin upon christ it's about the vertical issue, about us being made right before Him by faith in the finished work of His Son. This is why the gospel is good news. This is why the gospel is the power of God. This is why Paul says, "I will boast in nothing else but Christ and Him crucified," because this is the message that solves everything, because Christ solves everything. Colossians one nineteen and twenty. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Christ solves everything. When we understand the power and implications of the gospel, then we can understand the role of the church and why it matters. Acts is about the nature and the role of the church in God's plan. Acts is about the nature and the role of the church in God's plan. Acts talks about what the church does. And to be clear, Acts is not about how the church is necessarily to function. This is not a a manual on how to do church in terms of methodology. Acts is about what the church does in terms of what the role of the church is. This is the concept of, of precedent, that because something happened, it sets the stage for a principle, a truth, And here it's about the nature of the church. And so if you think about this, it's like studying history in school. When teaching on the Civil War, it's not to teach the students to start one. And we understand that. What they are teaching is that America is a certain way because that happened in the past. And because these things happened in the past with the church, the church today, us, must be a certain way. In other words, this is what the church is to be all about. And what is that? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Witnesses. We are to be witnesses. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, referring to the 12 apostles, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We are called to testify of Christ. That's the role of the church. That's our function. That's our calling to make Christ known, to proclaim the good news and that we can have absolute certainty and confidence in that message, knowing that God is at work. And that's the most important thing. That's the primary thing. We need to be about proclaiming him because he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is Lord. Again, it's not about putting ourselves in the place of the Lord. We don't do any of the saving we just proclaim faithfully knowing that God is sovereign over who comes to faith and who does not, which is why at the end he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Are we faithful to proclaim the message? The outcome is up to him. We don't need to be worried about the outcome. We're not in control of that. He is. What we must Our responsibility is just to spread the seed. That's the most important thing. That's what our role is. That's what our function is. That's what makes the church so critical. We point people to Christ. Acts chapter 2 is the launch of the church at Pentecost that establishes the foundation of what the church is which is a transformed and a new humanity that has a place in God's plan. We are his witnesses, those who are identified as testifiers of Christ. And who we are determines what we do. Who we are determines what we do. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. Practically and applicationally, any attempt to start up anything For the sake of the gospel or in the name of the gospel, where the gospel is not primary, where the gospel is not being proclaimed, where it's not clearly pointing to Christ, but is used as a almost a secondary or optional or in hopes of, misses the point. We need to be like a billboard that's right in your face. It needs to be very clear that as a church, we proclaim Christ and make him known. We shouldn't be the fine print in the back that you can barely read. The church is the only institution and instrument of God and authority of hope in this world. And we know that the gospel is for all, and Acts will show us that, for Jews and Gentiles. And so it's to go to all people, and it's to go to the the ends of the earth. And because this is God's plan, it will not be and cannot be stopped. And so we keep being faithful to proclaim it to the end. An understanding of your position and purpose makes all the difference. An understanding of your position and purpose makes all the difference. We need to know why we are to do what we are to do. For example, Ephesians 1-3, your position in Christ informs how you live practically. Romans 1-11 through informs how you live in Romans 12-16. through Our knowledge, understanding of who God is, what he has done, helps us to know what we are to do and why we are to do that. So are we focused on what we should be doing? God has assigned us with the most critical task of history. No other institution can or should do what the church is to do. We are, again, the pillar and grounds of the truth, the church of the living God. So while there might be other issues and social agendas that might want to attract our attention, we need to remember that we have the gospel. We have the gospel, and that the vertical drives the horizontal, and that must be plain, that must be clear, May we be faithful to do what the church is to do in God's plan. Jesus' words, again, about the cost of discipleship. We are distinct. We are set apart. We are to live, I am not my own type of lives. We've denied ourselves. We've taken up our cross. We are seeking to follow Christ. And so we live to do his will. We are his slaves. We are his servants. He is our Lord. He is our master. And so we proclaim him. We make him known. So that's the kind of storyline where Acts fits in. It goes all the way back to Genesis, to the fall, with a sin problem. It points to Christ, points to the gospel, and now it leads to the church in Acts 2. The church is now to go proclaim that truth, now that Christ has ascended and is still working through these apostles and working through us. So what are some Things we need to know about the book of Acts, the author, the recipient, the date. Luke was the one who authored Acts. He was also the author of the gospel according to Luke. And they're really one book. Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. They go together. They really belong together, and that's why they're commonly referred to as Luke-Acts. Uh, Luke-Acts comprises 28% of the New Testament. That's over a quarter of the New Testament, It's also interesting to note that Luke is the only non-Jewish writer, meaning he's the only Gentile author of Scripture, yet he's given so many words. Luke had a comprehensive knowledge of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is evident in his content and writing style, telling us that he was well-educated, a person of high social standing. We know that he's a physician. He's a historian based upon his writing. He's a theologian. He viewed history through the lens of, of faith, He was also an evangelist, according to his gospel. Luke was also a ministry associate and companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul, and we get that from what theologians call the we passages, first person plural passages in Acts, where Luke includes himself as part of that in Acts chapter 16 and 20 and 21 and 27. And so, we know of Luke that he observed significant portions of Paul's ministry as a fellow worker, and that he was also there with him. In Colossians 4, verse 14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. In Philemon, verse 24, says Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So Luke is there. Second Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11 says, make every effort to come to me soon. This is the end of Paul's life, his last letter, his last words. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Also, Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Paul is in prison towards the end of his life, and Luke we find is by his side. So God gave a Gentile the privilege of writing more words in the New Testament than any other author. Luke's Gospel and Acts are longer than all of Paul's letters put together. It's also longer than John's Gospel, Epistles, and Revelation combined. And as he penned his record of God's salvation in Christ, his words being under the divine inspiration of the Spirit, Luke was himself proof. Luke is proof that God's light now shines on all peoples of the earth. And it's very fitting that God used Luke to author what we have now in the book of Acts. He's writing in AD 61 to 63. If you pay attention to any of the background, uh, there's controversy over the date. Um, this is an early date, and I would hold to an early date because the book stops uh, before giving any details about what happened to Paul in his imprisonment, his first one. Uh, there's really a toleration of Christianity at that point. Uh, there's no talk of Nero or the fall of Jerusalem that happens AD 70. There's no mention of Paul's death or what happened again after he's imprisoned. prison. Uh, he's writing to Theophilus. His name means lover of God. Luke chapter one verse three again. These are two books that are uh, together. It says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Acts chapter one verse one says, we see that he's still writing to Theophilus. It continues. So Luke calls him most excellent, which is a term used of governor Felix in Acts 23, 26. And also in Acts 24, verse 3, it's also used of Governor Festus in Acts 26. And so we can take from that that Theophilus was a person with high standing and perhaps a Roman official. Uh, He held a position of Roman rule. We also have to take note that of the fact that Acts details a transitional period. It's a transitional period that's evidenced by clearly intended and repeated signs through the apostles, to demonstrate the progression and unity of the gospel for all who would repent and believe in Christ and the passing on and continuation of the gospel witness to the church. We see that with the coming of the falling down of the spirit at certain times to different groups of people. There's unity there demonstrating a transition. So we have to pay attention to that. And as we go through it, we'll point those out and say why this isn't normative for the church today. Uh, in terms of the chronology, the chronology, chronology and events of Acts spans about 30 years beginning from Jesus' ascension to the coming of the Promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost to Paul's first Roman imprisonment, a period about 30 years. And there's unity, again, between Volume 1 of Luke, 30 years of Jesus' life, Acts, 30 years of the apostles and the the establishment of the church. Uh, But, again, this is not a comprehensive, detailed, historical account of all these things. These are select events that Luke is focusing on, select events centered around specific people that he's drawing our attention to, to instruct us about something. We also need to learn about interpretation, and this is a big one. Uh, if you're doing Bible study at home, uh, genre of writing uh, matters. And so there's pr- principles for interpreting uh, Acts narratives, or just narratives in general. You apply the same basic hermeneutics, a grammatical, historical, literal interpretation, but there's principles that you apply to different genres as you read through them. So a basic principle in reading and interpreting narrative is that narrative is not normative. Narrative is not normative. They don't regulate or determine necessarily what we are to do today. We can get into some serious misapplications of scripture, unbiblical practices, if we don't understand this. And Acts has to be one of the most misapplied books in our day. Uh, Again, narrative is not normative, meaning that it's not prescriptive. It does present a factual story and account. It's a purposely intended recounting of selective historical events. And so we have to read narratives differently. We have to read them differently. They still contain truth, but the way that you arrive at that truth is different. The application might not be, do this but rather observe this. The application might not be do this, but rather observe this so that we focus on what God is doing and showing us. For example, the gospel can't be stopped and so we can praise God. The gospel continues to flourish and the word spreads and people are coming to faith. That teaches us that we can praise God because the gospel cannot be stopped. A common misconception is that Acts is... Acts is normative for the church. Everything that happens in Acts happens nowadays and is to happen nowadays and is to be a practice of the church. Why do uh, charismatics believe that tongues continue today? Because they see it in the book of Acts. Or the house church movement. Why does that happen today? Because they see it in the book of Acts. So how do we know what is and what isn't normative? How do we determine that? What guidelines, what guardrails do we have to help us determine that? We are to look for theological principles that are being emphasized in the narratives by the author. We look for theological principles that are being emphasized in the narrative by the author. And a key one in Acts is an emphasis on the church, on the church. Luke keeps talking about how the church came together in unity, in prayer, centered around the word and fellowship and service. The church is defined by these things, and Luke keeps drawing our attention to it, so it seems reasonable that he wants us to pick up on that. We can ask, is the theological principle found in the narrative later established? Is it later established and verified by a command in the epistles? If so, then that becomes normative for our lives. Is it something that we observe in Acts that's commanded in the epistles? If so, that's something that we can go off of. The authors of the epistles tell us you need to meet together. You need to submit to the teaching of God's word. You need to pray. You need to fellowship. You need to serve. We observe that in Acts. We, it's commanded to us by the apostles by the in the epistles, and so we know that's normative for us today. Also, we look for repetition of mention, repetition of mention. We look for points of emphasis throughout the narrative and things that are then backed up in the epistles. And that's a good, sound way to make application from narratives. from narratives. Again, Acts is the record of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a blueprint for ministry, although its narratives may illustrate principles for church life and leadership in the New Testament. We want to know what happens and the meaning behind it. We always want to focus on what is the author's intent. What is the author implying and, and what is the meaning in this passage? And then look at how does that all connect together? Before we start trying to apply everything, we must know what it means. And so what's the purpose statement? What is the purpose statements for for Acts? Luke chapter 1, verse 4 says, so that you may know, he, he's writing to Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. His reference to the things that you have been taught indicates that this person that he's writing to, Theophilus, had already received some instruction in the Christian faith. And so Luke writes to Theophilus to assure him of the things that he's been taught, to give him certainty and confidence in the word of God concerning Jesus. And that carries over to Acts. So where Luke ends, Acts picks up. Acts is written to Theophilus and us today so that we would know with certainty that the word taught to us is absolutely true. It's absolutely true from the beginning and that Gentiles had a place in God's plan of salvation and that through the word proclaimed and the faithful witness of his people and now through the church, we can have confidence in that message. Acts 1.1 says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, all that Jesus began to do and teach, which spanned from his birth to his ascension. And now Acts recounts what Jesus continued to do and teach so that we would have certainty and confidence concerning those things. So Jesus is still at work. Um, some themes, I'll try to move through these quickly. Um, the big one, a primary one, is God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan. It involves a triune God and shows God's plan of salvation that it will go to the ends of the earth that God's eternally chosen will be effectually called through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and regenerated to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The spread of the gospel and the growth of the church cannot be stopped because God is sovereignly over it. And we have the repetition of what we call "day" in Greek, D-E-I, which means had to. This had to happen or this must happen. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, says the Scripture had to be fulfilled. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. And in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We must be saved. We also see the determination of God, the appointment of God, the fulfillment of Scripture. Acts two, twenty three. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts seventeen, twenty six. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We also see the power of God on display, and usually in connection with salvation. We see the power of God connected with salvation. It's used 37 times in Acts. So we see God's sovereign plan put on display. We also see Jesus as Savior and Lord, and mention of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Luke 22, 44 to 49, says, "'Now he said to them, "'These are my words which I spoke to you "'while I was still with you, "'that all things which are written about me "'in the law of Moses and the prophets "'and the Psalms must be fulfilled. "'Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, "'and he said to them, "'Thus it is written, "'that the Christ would suffer and rise again "'from the dead on the third day, "'and that repentance for forgiveness of sins "'would be proclaimed in his name "'to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem.'" You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. The Holy Spirit was promised in the Gospels. It was also promised in John 14 through 16 by who? By Jesus. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit as an empowerment for the apostles to act, and thus he connects them back to Jesus, the Spirit. The apostles are not, if we think about it, the apostles are not attacked for being Peter, which Acts focuses on his ministry, or Paul, which Acts also focuses on his ministry, but they're not attacked, they're not suffering because they're necessarily Peter and Paul. They're attacked for being identified with, proclaiming Christ. It's who they're proclaiming. That's why it's all good and friendly, and there's no problems until you proclaim Christ. So there's a connection to Jesus, even with him promising the spirit back in the gospels and, and in John fourteen sixteen, through 14 through 16. It points them to what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the apostles by the spirit to the apostles and now to the church. We see this emphasis on repentance and baptism and the breaking of bread. Uh, Acts two thirty eight, Peter says, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Pointing to Christ granting repentance. Repentance and baptism we'll see over and over in the book of Acts. We also see, which usually gets emphasized the most, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This continues the ministry again of the ascended Christ. The Holy Spirit enables and empowers the disciples. We have the word, emphasis on the word, the word of God and the word proclaimed through the apostles. About one third of the text contains speeches, whether addresses or defenses. So a third of the book of Acts contains words, words of what people spoke. Uh, The word is clearly connected with the growth of the church. The word is clearly connected with the growth of the church. And the same Greek verb is used for referring to the increase in the number of disciples as it is in referring to the increase of the word, the spread of the word. And so there's a direct correlation between the spread of the word and the increase of the word with the increase of the number of the people and the disciples. It's by the Lord's words that he does his work. And now his apostles after ascension are his representatives. And so they speak a lot. And it's through their words that the work is accomplished. It's through their words that the work is accomplished. It's by the word that the church will grow. And we'll see that in Acts. The speeches will revolve around four main ideas. A testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles tell people about Christ. Number two, the off the offer of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. Number three, the requirement for of repentance for sins. And four, the requirement for faith in Christ. And so what we see in, in these speeches is that they preach Christ. They offer the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. They require repentance from, from those sins and faith in Christ. So what are they proclaiming? The gospel. They are proclaiming the gospel. We also see uh, an emphasis on prayer, just as we read in Acts 16 today. They're praying, and Peter's released. We have um, P- uh, Paul is released. We have Peter in a previous chapter. He's in prison. People are praying for him. He's released. We have a call to leaders of the church that they would focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, and they'd select others to serve the church in different ways to free them up to do those things. There's a lot of emphasis on prayer. So word, the word and the prayer. We also see Israel's rejection of the message. Israel's rejection of the message and the Gentiles' acceptance of the message. This, this this contrast between Israel turning away and then now the message going to the Gentiles, the Gentiles accepting that message. So Israel's rejection and Gentiles' acceptance. And Paul re- talks about that a lot. He says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It all connects together. God's plan through Jesus and the Spirit has brought all kinds of people into his family. And Luke explains this new movement emerging out of Judaism, and how it came to incorporate Jews and Gentiles into this new community of God through the establishment of the church. Jesus is Lord of all, and so the gospel is to be proclaimed to all. And we see the triumph of the gospel as it penetrates and expands from Jerusalem to Rome, and now is to continue even beyond that to the ends of the earth. So we we see this anticipation of God's future work and plan for Israel as well, even from the beginning of Acts chapter one. God is not done With Israel. Everything that he has promised Israel, everything that um, is written in the Old Testament concerning Israel will come to pass. It has not transferred over to the church. We also see suffering, opposition, persecution coming as a result of the the message proclaimed. Um, So we are to be witnesses, which comes from the word martyr, um, witnesses unto the death, faithful witnesses, obedient, knowing that we belong to him. So suffering is another theme that we see throughout Acts, and it's all connected with the Word. It's all connected with God's sovereign plan. We know Philippians 1 says that God didn't just grant us to believe, but He also granted us that we would suffer. It's all a part of God's sovereign plan. We'll move to structure. I think it's good to get a basic understanding of the structure of the book. Um, how is Acts structured? Acts can be broken down, outlined in a few ways, and it's helpful to know and have these as a part of our understanding as we go through the book. The predominant way that Acts has been structured is geographically, geographically based upon the movement of the gospel to different regions. And this comes from the theme verse, as we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And there's the general outlined geographically chapters 1 through 7 in jerusalem chapters 8 through 12 in Judea and samaria chapters 13 to 28 to the remotest part of the earth acts is also it's not only structured according to the movement of the gospel geographically but it's also structured around the ministry of christ and the holy spirit through two emphasized witnesses acts chapter 1 through 12 through the ministry of the apostle peter mostly to jews Acts 13 to 28, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, mostly to Gentiles. And so the events selected and described by Luke in both of their ministries really parallel one another, showing that the gospel was intended for both Jews and Gentiles, and the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ to highlight the continuity in salvation history. It's all according to the one plan of God. Acts is also structured according to the triumph of the gospel in the face of obstacles and opposition and suffering and politicians and persecution and imprisonment and injustice, trials and tribulations. Acts is structured according to how the gospel continues to move forward and triumphs despite these hindrances. Each one of these sections is capped off with the affirmative statement of the continued progress of the gospel. And that really gives us encouragement and confidence and hope. In chapter 2 verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 6 verse 7, this comes after facing opposition. The word of the God, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Chapter 9 verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. 16, verse 5, the churches were being strengthened in the faith, were increasing in number daily, and there's more. So these mark-off sections in the book where they face opposition, yet were affirmed with these statements that the word continued to triumph, that the gospel cannot be stopped. And that's another way to see the structure of the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts clearly shows that the word of God will continue to spread unhindered because God's plan cannot be hindered. And some application that we can take about the general book of Acts is it will help us better understand and have a greater perspective of the epistles. So not only will Acts help us get a better understanding of what's contained in Acts, but Acts will help us understand really the entire Bible and specifically the epistles in the New Testament. We need Acts to understand the epistles. Acts impacts every single epistle in the New Testament. In Acts, we learn about Paul and his conversion and how through his gospel ministry, primarily to Gentiles, churches began and sprung up in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, and Crete. In Paul's epistles, we learn that circumcision is not required, but only faith alone in Christ alone. Well, what happened to the covenant sign that distinguished God's people since really Abraham's day? Max fills us in on that. In Paul's epistles, we learn that the promised spirit has arrived and that anyone who lacks the Spirit does not belong to Christ, Romans 8, verse 9, and that the Spirit incorporates Jews and Greeks, slave and free, into one body, enabling them to serve one another in love, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Acts answers when and how the Spirit came. Paul provides instruction and exhortation for unity between Jews and Gentiles and addresses Judaism and the law. Acts gives us the background to that. So we need Acts to understand All of the New Testament epistles, it gives us a a better understanding of what happened before and why Paul is writing these things now. Another application is given to us as we study through Acts is how we are to live, how we are to live. And again, we shouldn't necessarily be seeking to imitate the apostles, but more so what the, what the believers were doing, what they were doing and understand that they become, that they become examples for us. Over and over again, Luke draws attention to this new humanity. We already pointed out, he draws our attention to the church and what they did. He draws our attention to this new humanity. He says, guess what they're doing? What do we observe from them? They were submitting themselves to the teaching of God's word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what happens in the local church. That's how we should be living our Christian lives, and that and living that simple life is the means by which the gospel progresses. Living that simple life is the means by which that gospel progresses. It's nothing crazy, nothing extreme, just a simple life lived in obedience to those principles in the way in which, is the way in which the gospel advances. So an example of this is when we look at Acts chapter 3 through 5, there's a, a chiasm, and we learn a little about what that was When we went through Esther, what is in the middle is where the focus is. So a chiasm is something's on top, something is on the bottom. They're parallel. They're the same. But what's in the middle is what is emphasized, is what is important, is where our focus should be. It's drawing our attention to that middle point. And in chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 22, there's a healing that occurs. There's a speech that happens. And there's opposition that's faced by the apostles. At the bottom of that, chapter 5, verse 12, to the end of chapter 5, there's, again, a healing, a speech, an opposition. So what's in the middle that we are to focus on, that we are to observe and know? Chapter 4, verse 23, to chapter 5, verse 11. And what, what do we have there? We have believers. The focus is on the believers. The believers were praying. And also we have Ananias and Sapphira not telling the truth. So there's an exhortation to live a life of integrity. We have believers praying and a call to live a life of integrity. The corrupt temple system is being shifted to one side. The church is taking its its place, the place of primacy. So God's making it clear that it's through the church, it's through the church that he is now going to do his work because the temple wasn't functioning in the way that it was intended to. And so we can be encouraged that through those simple acts of obedience, praying, living a life of integrity, of faithfulness, that the gospel does its work. That the gospel does its work. And how is it that the church and the apostles ministry is so effective? Why were they so effective? Because they focused on Christ. In chapter three, verse six, it's all about Christ. It says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Everything was done in the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Chapter 4, verse 7, when they had placed him in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? In chapter 4, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And again, in chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, pointing to that it's not us, but it's Christ that is doing these things. All that is being done is being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore through the Lord Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. Luke is encouraging us to live a life of boldness and of of proclaiming the gospel, a consistent witness to Christ, a life of prayer, not underestimating what the Lord will do through our faithful prayers, and in anticipation of suffering as well. Luke wants us to be certain of the things that we have been taught, and that is an incredible blessing, but it comes with a humbling responsibility of whether we will live our lives in a faithful manner so that the gospel will go forth through us. So what characterizes this new people of God is evangelism and a God-honoring life. What characterizes this new people of God is evangelism and a God-honoring life. If this is the plan of God for the church, and we are the church, then our response to the governing authorities or to anyone else attempting to silence the truth of God and the gospel is clear. We must obey God rather than men. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ called to testify about him to the world, so we cannot give up our call. We cannot compromise that the mission that we have has been delegated to us. We cannot hide our light. We cannot hide our salt presence and influence. We cannot sit back and isolate ourselves. We must stand firm. We must love. We must boldly proclaim the gospel of hope in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, we will have reason to glory because we did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Another application is that the the message never changes. The message never changes. From the Old Testament to Jesus, to Peter, to Paul, to the church, we see continuity of the gospel message and the success of the word through the faithful proclamation of the word because God is sovereign over salvation we also see that God uses all of his people. God uses all of us. He uses the the impulsive Peter. He uses even murderous Saul. He changes and transforms them, and he uses them, and we see the ministry of Peter and what it accomplished. We see the mini- the ministry of Paul and what it accomplished. God can and does use all of us. Are we willing servants? Another application is that we can have confidence in the gospel. We can have confidence in the gospel. And we see that through the success of the word continuing to progress despite any hindrances. We can have confidence in the gospel. So we see that it's not just about doing church. It's about being the church. There's a big difference. It's not just about doing church. It's about being the church. The acts of the apostles, as this book has been called, the acts of the Holy Spirit, the birth and growth of the church, the church and the plan of God, the triumph of the gospel. We see all these things in the passing of the baton from Jesus to the apostles, to the birth and establishment of the church, and now Jesus working through us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It didn't fail with Jesus. It didn't fail with the apostles. And they fulfilled God's plan and will. And we can have confidence that it will not fail with the church because Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so we are to live and work to fulfill God's plan and will that he has laid out for the church, knowing the success of the gospel knowing the success of the gospel, yet also understanding our calling to which we are to be faithful to. Christ has done all of the work. He's saved us, he's called us, he's empowered us. All we are to do is be faithful to proclaim the message. And we have this confidence because the message will not be stopped. It won't be hindered. Acts begins with the gospel going out from Jerusalem, spreading to Judea and all Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, Rome at that time. And Acts ends with the imprisonment of Paul in Rome, where he now has a platform and freedom imprisoned in chains because the word of God is not imprisoned. The gospel cannot be stopped. Acts 28, verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, this is Paul, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. This is Paul in prison, yet he's unhindered from proclaiming the gospel, and he continues to do that. The continuation of God's plan and purpose in history from the Old Testament to the ministry of Jesus to the apostles, and now it's to the church. Acts establishes the power, purpose, significance, scope, and plan of the church. And so this book elevates what the church is. This book elevates what the church is. And we see that in in what we'll be studying these next few months. We want to understand what the church is and understand who we are because that determines what we do. And I pray that that would help us to see and observe what happens in Acts And see that we have this great privilege of proclaiming the truth as God has planned it out from eternity past to the present, even, even affecting the future. We play a very critical role and the church has a very important and critical role. And are we faithful? Are we faithful to proclaim that message? I'll end with two hymns. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on hear the call of Christ, our captain, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. We have the ultimate triumph of the gospel. God is sovereignly over salvation. He has established the church for a very critical purpose and we must fulfill that purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for building your church through your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished. That you've given us the task of continuing on through the ministry of the Spirit, your Spirit, this very important role of proclaiming the gospel so that it would reach the ends of the earth. We pray that your Spirit would empower us and motivate us to go out and boldly proclaim truth and to see you work, uh, knowing that you're in control of the outcome and help us to be obedient as we faithfully live lives of um, integrity and faithfulness and continue on in in what we observe in acts of sitting under the word, of praying, of being in fellowship together, of serving one another, and of proclaiming the gospel. We pray that you would help us to do that, and we, we do depend upon you to give us the grace, and we do pray that we would be obedient to that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.